Admiral, welcome to FTD. Really appreciate you making time to, to talk with us. Thanks, Brad. It's uh, certainly a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's always beneficial and helpful to see my friend uh, Admiral Montgomery as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I thought we would just jump right in with your permission. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of folks here in D.C. opine on the nature of the military threat from China. There's a lot of reports published in Washington on that topic. But you're, you are the American combat commander who understands the threat from the People's Liberation Army or the PLA best. So I'm very interested uh, in your current assessment of the threat from the PLA. How is it changing or evolving? And what do you think Americans uh, who may not be paying attention to this full time like you are, what, what do they need to know about it? Uh, thanks again, Brad. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I think what uh, most people need to understand, and I'm here to tell you, I think many of you do, uh, the United States is pretty focused on the challenge that China provides both the United States and globally. Uh, militarily, what we are seeing uh, from my seat is the largest military buildup in history since World War II. Uh, that buildup encompasses all domains and all capabilities, whether it's naval ships, whether it's fifth generation aircraft, uh, whether it's missile def missile forces, uh, whether it's cyber capability or capability in space, uh, to include strategic nuclear capability. So uh, the concern for all Americans should be uh, the pace, scale, and scope uh, that China is growing, and what does that mean with regard to intent for a future peaceful globe? Well, that's great. Now, it seems to me as the more they build up their military, the more aggressive they're behaving in a lot of a lot of places, including the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. You mentioned the largest military buildup since World War II and, and the largest uh, in the history of the People's Republic of China, I would add. You know, we're witnessing the largest invasion in Europe since World War II, and that, and that makes me think of, you know, you're focused full-time on the Indo-Pacific, but I, I suspect you see the headlines about Ukraine. When you look at Ukraine and what's happening there and the unprovoked invasion there, what are the core lessons you draw for the Indo-Pacific? What, what lessons do you draw for your area of responsibility from Ukraine? Uh, thanks, Brett. I want to first uh, highlight the tremendous work by my uh, partner, General Walters, uh, and all the NATO nations, uh, as well as the uh, incredible effort uh, by the Ukrainians. Uh, I am completely uh, impressed by what they intend, what they continue to do to defend their nation. Uh, as it applies to Indo-Pacific lessons learned, uh, I think globally what we see is that the world is uh, certainly uh, unwilling to accept uh, a single person's actions, illegitimate, unprovoked, uh, to change the world order, the status quo, the international rules-based order uh, through an uh, unprovoked, illicit invasion. Uh, that is not in the benefit of all nations uh, on the earth. Uh, and we should all be concerned about that actions. Now, from where I sit, uh, the most concerning aspect of it is that the People's Republic of China have declared a no-limits policy in support of Russia. Uh, and what that means to both the Indo-Pacific and the globe, uh, if those two nations were to truly demonstrate and deliver uh, a no-limits policy. I think what that means is that we're currently in an extremely dangerous time and place in the history uh, of humanity uh, if that were to come true. Yeah, for sure, and, and as you would know better than me, we've observed, uh, um, combined the, uh, the joint patrol last year, Russian, Chinese patrol around Japan, and, uh, 
and, and uh, we've seen, as you said, Beijing echoing some of the false talking points of, of Russia after the uh, invasion of Ukraine in February. Um, you know, when a lot of people see headlines about Taiwan or the South China Sea, they, the first thing they may, th uh, they may not think of Guam, right? Um, but I, I think it's important for folks to understand the importance of Guam to uh, American military posture and deterrence in the region. So I'm eager to ask you this. Um, how important, from your perspective, uh, as, the, as the combatant commander there, are the military bases on Guam to deterrence? By that we mean, as you know well, but some of the viewers may not, uh, you know, preventing something from happening in the first place because uh, the aggressor thinks they can't accomplish their objectives or the cost would be too high. How important is Guam to American deterrence and likely contingencies in the region? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Guam's extremely important, but let me, let me go beyond a little bit, uh, start beyond Guam. Uh, and talk about the United States force posture west of the uh, international sure. dateline, right? So all those posture places are important. Mm -hmm. uh, our partners in Japan, the bases mm -hmm. and places we operate from uh, on the Japan uh, mainland are critically important. Uh, our support and our effort and our basing in the Republic of Korea yeah. is extremely important. Uh, the places we operate with our allies and partners across the region yeah. Uh, is important uh, to deliver deterrence. Guam is absolutely a strategic location. Uh, we, will, we will need to operate from Guam. We will need to both fight for and from Guam. Mm. Uh, and uh, it will provide a variety of capabilities and support functions uh, should we end up in some crisis situation. So. Uh, it's extremely important, and uh, I didn't leave this for last, but 125,000 United States citizens, it's, right. the, it's the homeland. Who would expect to be defended. <laughs> and and <laughs> we treat it, uh, exactly. obviously, uh, yeah. as, a, as important as it is. That's great. I'm glad you zoomed out first there, um, uh, because that's been an area of research here at FDD about the, uh, regarding the value of defending forward, the value of forward posture, and you know from your decades of service to our country. When, when we station for, forces forward, that helps with deterrence, it helps with training, um, and it, it helps ultimately over the long run uh, reduce some of the burden on us as our partners become more capable. And, and, um, um, and so I, I'm glad you, you made that broader point. Coming back to Guam, uh, the, you know, you, you've talked about its importance to, uh, you know, we gotta protect the American citizens there. You've talked about its importance uh, for contingency plans um, in, in the region. Yet uh, our research tells us that there's a growing uh, Chinese missile threat to Guam. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on the nature of that growing Chinese missile threat to Guam and, and any sort of timelines that you can share in an unclassified uh, conversation here. Yeah, the, uh, as we started the conversation with, right, the increase in capability and the military buildup, uh, the, the PLA rocket force is yeah. clearly uh, developing continuous uh, advanced capabilities, longer range, uh, Guam has a 360 degree threat. Yeah. Uh, so our ability to defend it uh, and to be able to operate from there is absolutely critical. Uh, I won't have any timelines. I could see a continuous improvement yeah. and a continuous threat. And what that leads me to, to, uh, to, to do is to move with a sense of urgency yeah. in order to provide the capabilities uh, that both defend and we can project power from Guam. That's great. You know, our, our this, and, and you would have better information, but our, you know, our research suggests that that the that Beijing is sprinting to field ballistic, advanced ballistic and cruise missiles to threaten 
uh, much of our posture in the region, including Guam. And as you've just suggested, it seems to me we need to sprint faster than they are to protect our interests in, in Americans there. Um, in terms of uh, American air and missile defense on Guam, uh, what do you see as the current primary uh, deficiencies that need to be addressed to, to better protect ourselves there? Uh, well, first, I'm, I'm uh, extremely encouraged and thankful for the secretary uh, because as you've looked at the 23 budget, uh, the delivery of a capability has uh, been identified by the department, yeah. and I thank both Deputy Secretary Hicks and Secretary Austin for the support. Uh, so the key is to take uh, the, the tremendous effort and the budget and then move forward to deliver that capability right. against all those threats, yeah. whether they be uh, maneuvering or whether they be ballistic, whether they be cruise missile, uh, we have to be able to deliver that capability to protect the forces and the people against all those threats. That's great. What do you see as the, to the degree that you're able to talk about, it, what do you see as the basic requirements or lay down for an initial operational capability for improved missile defense on Guam? And uh, I understand the reluctance to talk about timeline, but um, it seems like uh, there, there's an initial capability we might be able to have to kind of address the immediate threats, and then over time we might be able to improve and expand that. Um, and, and, and more generally, do you have any concerns that we have to be careful not to make the perfect the enemy of good and add things to it that may delay our, the deployment timeline for our air and missile defense? Uh, any thoughts on IOC, what that looks like, what FOC looks like? Yeah, again, from, from the combatant commander position, I've articulated the requirements yeah. that I believe. Yeah. Uh, I believe that uh, a near-term capability is desired. I also believe in a phased approach and mm -hmm. continuous improvement yeah. to be able to take on all threats that either uh, might come to fruition, uh, yeah. certainly the threats that we see uh, now. Uh, I'm encouraged that the, uh, the, the department is working towards that architecture mm -hmm. and the delivery of a capability as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, how, you mentioned command and control earlier. How concerned are you about maintaining command and control for forces west of the dateline, and, and how might we mitigate the risks associated with you doing that? I mean, it's such a vast area of responsibility. I would imagine that's a tremendous challenge. Yeah, half the globe. Uh, yeah, exactly. That said, uh, we've proven over many years that the United States uh, can operate as a joint force, synchronized, integrated in all domains across vast distances. Yeah. Uh, that's the exact problem I have in the Pacific. Uh, we are continuing to work on ways to ensure that our C2 is resilient. Uh, we expect to be attacked in that domain. Yeah. Uh, and we have to put in place the structure and the formations that allow us to command and control no matter where we are, whether it's inside the first island chain, outside the first island chain, uh, all the way back to any headquarters. So this uh, view of being able to deliver a picture across a node of nodes uh, is the approach we're taking, and I'm confident we can do that. Depending what the uh, solution, either the initial solution or the, uh, kind of the long-term uh, solution in Guam, depending what that looks like, do you see that that air and missile defense solution is helping with some of your command and control challenges? Um, and could it eventually help provide some offensive capability to, uh, that might be useful from a deterrence perspective? Yeah, it's critical that we weave in. Again, wherever we have capability, wherever we are operating, we have to be able to weave it in. Yeah. We have to ensure that everyone sees the same picture. Uh, and we have to be, we have to ensure that it's real time. Yeah. And the delivery of that capability is, uh, is a, a true focus area for us. And uh, the support from the department is really helpful. 
One, one question I always like to ask with you know, full deference and respect to the, the, uh, the budget request and, and the many things in it that will be helpful to you and help, help you and, and, and the Americans that you lead accomplish your mission. If you were given, you know, pick a number, $5 billion in, in a fund, right? Yeah, just pull that number out of the sky. $5 billion um, above and beyond the, the, the budget request, where would you spend it to best address your, uh, your, your, your requirements? I always love a hypothetical. Yeah, I know. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I couldn't resist. Uh, so I think what I would articulate is, you know, as a part of the NDAA, Indo-PAC Commerce Task, to provide an assessment yes. and an understanding of capabilities that we view as critical. Uh, I would point to that report, yeah. and I would highlight the critical capabilities of being able to operate in contested space, yeah. uh, the persistent battle space awareness, real time yeah. that, that I articulated, and then the ability to close the kill chain with yeah. the correct weapons from any location. Yeah. Uh, I think funds in the near term uh, focused on those areas would provide immediate uh, increased advantage for the United States and deliver uh, the integrated deterrence that the Secretary of Defense has tasked us with. That's great. Now, and for viewers, you know, Congress mandated uh, that uh, your command provide a report, a Pacific Deterrence Initiative report that really goes right at the question I asked. And as you said there, uh, your command has provided this report and it lays out in quite, de in quite specific detail about what you need to do your mission. And, and, um, and I, I think it's, I'm glad you highlighted that. I um, want to zoom in a little bit on some of the services uh, um, and, um, and, and what is most helpful to you uh, in your area in terms of what the services can provide. So specifically, what sort of lay down would you like to see from the U.S. Air Force forward station? You mentioned Japan earlier. What kind of uh, lay down would you like to see from the Air Force in Japan and Guam in, in your ideal world? Uh, thanks. Uh, let, me, let me start by saying... Uh, you know, I have the best component commanders yeah. in the Indo-Pacific who truly understand the region yeah. uh, and what's needed to deliver the integrated deterrence we discussed before. Uh, so to do this, it will take the entire joint force. Yeah. We can have conversations about specific services, yeah. uh, but the fact that that team comes together for me every day to synchronize their operations, to include space and cyberspace, uh, to deliver a robust posture and set of operations uh, has been really impressive to watch from my component commanders. Uh, from the Air Force perspective, uh, forward, station, persistent, uh, deep penetrating capability uh, is what I'm asked for. Yeah. Uh, additionally, the ability to uh, be expeditionary yeah. and uh, move around the theater in places that matter when needed. Uh, that's what I've asked, and General Wilsbach has been tremendous. That's great. Is it reasonable to expect permanently, in your view, permanently stationed Air Force fifth-generation aircraft west of west of the Dateline? Do you think that's a, that's a reasonable? Yeah, I think. Well, for your awareness, they're already there. Yeah, on de temporary deployments, but permanently stationed as well. I would envision that that uh, capability is certainly well. It's okay. certainly desirable. Yes. Uh, but we would like to get to that. Yeah. Uh, that ability to, like I said, operate in contested space, fifth generation yeah. capabilities, whether they be F-22, F-35, are, are critically yeah. important to the ability to deliver deterrence. That's great. From my perspective, for what it's worth, you know, we talked about, you, know, you, you mentioned anti-access area denial threats. If, if when a conflict starts, our assets aren't there, you know, there might be challenges getting them there. So it seems to me there might be some value in having some of those forces already there once the, once the conflict starts. What is your, I'm interested in your assessment of the, uh, 
Air Force's uh, doctrine or, or concept of agile concept, uh, agile combat employment. Um, and for viewers, this is you know this idea that our you know in a, in a conflict our bases will will probably may be targeted by the adversary, um, and so it's the need to be agile and move around and be unpredictable. Interested to hear and how you think that is going. How is is the implementation of this agile combat employment concept going in the Indo Pacific? Yeah, General Wilsbach again is doing a really good job operationalizing the ACE concept in the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, he's executed a few events now. Uh, continues to pull lessons learned yeah. uh, and continues to refine on what it means to deliver that capability in yeah. the Indo-Pacific. Yeah. So we look forward to continuing to utilize it. Uh, the concept makes the force more survivable. Uh, you combine that with some defenses and, and now uh, we have a, a airborne capability that can deliver dilemmas from anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I was I was privileged to do a uh, a podcast a while back with the commander of uh, U.S. Army Pacific Command and really enjoyed talking with him. And uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. What are the primary things that you need as a combatant commander from the Army, from the U.S. Army in the, in, in the region? Yeah, General Flynn uh, as well is doing tremendous effort uh, operationalizing the multi-domain task force uh, structure uh, while he's working towards the delivery of those added capabilities. Uh, his ability to move around the theater, uh, again, to provide uh, land-based capabilities against either land targets, at sea targets, uh, both in space and cyberspace, uh, those capabilities with the rest of the joint force. Uh, now there's there are problems that are coming from everywhere in the Indo-Pacific, and that's our approach. So, so, uh, so that's interesting. You, you, you're, you're talking about offensive strike capabilities from the Army in the Pacific, so long-range precision fires, and then any thoughts on, on the Army's role in, in, in air and missile defense? Uh, certainly, uh, they will have a role yeah. in air and yeah. missile defense. Yeah. As you know, Thad is already yeah. on Guam. Yeah. Uh, and as we work to build out uh, what that architecture looks like, as we integrate with our Japanese partners, uh, again, the Army has a critical role in the uh, integrated air and missile defense uh, mission set. Uh, we also left out the logistics support, right? right? So exactly. the theater logistics commander. Right. Uh, and again, General Flynn has put a lot of effort into ensuring that not only are, is the, are the forces deployed, but they are sustained. And yeah. uh, I can't thank him enough for all of his hard work. That's great. Um, you know, speaking of the Army, as, but as well as the Air Force, uh, we've focused a bit of our research here on the state partnership program. And I know from my eight or nine years of working in the U.S. Senate, I, I, I didn't know a lot about the state partnership program as an active duty military officer, and I went to the U.S. Senate. I, I became very familiar with it, you know, the New Hampshire National Guard and the Indiana National Guard, and I really came to become an admirer of the program for the, the long-term relationships and capabilities that that program helps build. Interested in hearing your thoughts on how we might expand or strengthen uh, the state partnership program in the region to best support the national defense strategy. Yeah, I've spoken specifically with General Hokanson about the benefits uh, that the National Guard uh, provide. Uh, the state partnership program links us through people-to-people -people ties yeah. uh, through all the nations in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah. Uh, they bring expertise from both their civilian positions and their military roles. Uh, you know, that continues to expand our relationships with our allies and partners. And again, allies and partners in the region are a uh, critical uh, advantage that any competitors in the region do not have. Yeah. So anything uh, that can contribute to that is uh, extremely focused and he's really done a lot of work in helping us out. Yeah, 
we mentioned Ukraine earlier, and uh, I, I was privileged to do a, an event a while back with the chief of the National Guard Bureau, and he talked about the National Guard in Ukraine and the, the many, many trading iterations that they conducted over the years and, and, um, and how those were helpful. And obviously the, the primary reason for success in Ukraine is the bravery of the Ukrainian people defending their homes against this invasion. But uh, it, just, it just reminded me that um, these training, this training that we can do before the invasion will pay real dividends in terms of deterrence or, or success on the battlefield once it comes. And I would suspect that we'd see the same thing in the Pacific. Um, excellent. Uh, so, you know, Mark at the, uh, at the beginning in his introduction mentioned uh, your biography and uh, the fact that you were an F-14 and F-18 pilot and uh, that you graduated from the Top Gun School and commanded a number of fighter squadrons and were an adversary instructor pilot. So based on that, I can't resist the temptation. Uh, have you seen Top Gun yet and, and what do you think? Uh, of, of course, okay, I've seen okay, it. Okay. Uh, uh, I thought it was a tremendous film. I thought okay. it was really entertaining. I yeah. had a lot of friends who actually participated oh, okay. in the technical advice yeah. and then uh, a variety of partners who actually did the flying in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I'm really impressed. Uh, uh, again, I thought it was a great film and I really enjoyed yeah. it. Okay. Brought me back a little bit. Okay, there, yeah, I bet, yeah, some, <laughs> some memories there, I would imagine. That's very cool. Um, so I, I've, I've asked you a lot. Of, we've covered a lot of ground. We've, we've moved quickly. Um, I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to a, uh, address anything else that I should have asked or that you'd like to cover before we conclude. Yeah, thanks. First of all, thanks again for, for having me today. It's, uh, it's great to be with the team here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you know, the, the key here uh, as we look at this pretty dangerous national security mm -hmm. environment is I don't think we can operate under a business-as-usual mindset, yeah. Yeah. whether that's the Department of Defense, services, yeah. combatant commanders, industry. Uh, I think we have to understand, uh, you know, the concern of, you know, what does the future look like uh, based on the security environment and the objectives of some of our competitors. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that future is something that any of us would be happy with, right? We, yeah. we work and operate and fight every day for the freedoms that we have. Uh, the ability to deliver a free and open Indo-Pacific is what we spend our time on. Uh, and I can tell you my team uh, is the best team, uh, the greatest set of China and threat uh, experts in the region. And we spend every day trying to, uh, again, I thank uh, all the service members in the Indo-Pacific for their dedication and, and sacrifice. Well, thank you for that. No, it's, it seems to me just tying things once again to Ukraine that uh, the horrible uh, situation there just is, is, a, is a potent reminder that uh, investments in deterrence are much cheaper than dealing with the consequences of war and, and that, um, um, that we need to make sure that you as the combat commander have everything you need to uh, fulfill the mission that you're given uh, by Washington. And, and so that's why I'm so honored and pleased to talk with you. and. And I want to thank you, Admiral, both for your, your decades of service to our country and, and for, for the important leadership role that you're playing to, uh, to protect Americans and our allies in the region and to secure our interests. So um, I, I thank you sincerely for what you've done and continue to do for our country. And thanks to everyone for uh, tuning in and viewing this. And for more information on FDB and our Center on Military and Political Power, we encourage you to visit fdb.org. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, sir.